Hi there, I'm Dexter Fergie, and you're listening to New Books in Intellectual History. Thank you very much for listening. Today I'll be speaking with Daniel Bessner to chat about his fantastic new book called Democracy in Exile, Hans Speyer and the Rise of the Defense Intellectual. It will be published later this month by Cornell University Press. The book is a deep dive into the life of Hans Speyer and more broadly into the origins and development of expert-driven foreign policy. The book makes critical arguments about the role of emigre scholars in the burgeoning national security state, about the debates over the viability of democracy in the 1930s, and about the role that the interwar crisis played in creating the Cold War mentality. As defense intellectuals and the national security state continue to wield vast, even anti-democratic power today, Democracy in Exile speaks to our present post-9-11 age. The book will be of interest to historians of the Cold War, U.S. foreign relations, the social sciences, transatlantic crossings, and communications, along with anyone engaged in debates about how foreign policy should be made. I hope you enjoy our interview. I'm here with Daniel Bessner to talk about his book, Democracy in Exile. Welcome to the show, Danny. Thanks for having me, Dexter. I really appreciate uh, being on. I'm a first time, long time with the New Books Network. So I've heard. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, thank you for writing such a rich and thought provoking book. Well, uh, I really appreciate that. Uh, you know, you spend a, a decade working on a book and you just hope people find it somewhat interesting and useful at the uh, at the end of it all. So uh, before we get into your book, can you start us off by telling listeners about your road to becoming a historian? What drew you to the discipline? Uh, yeah, sure. Um Basically, I've always been interested in history. Uh, I think like many, um, I'm, a, I'm a, a Jew. And so like many Jews, I was very interested in the Holocaust growing up. It was a very big part of um, Jewish education in the, the 80s and the 90s. And that I think really spurred my interest in, in reading about history. So starting in high school, um, which also happened to coincide, I never really thought about it this way with the release of a lot of pretty good historical movies, like uh, at least the beginning of Saving Private Ryan, uh, Enemy at the Gate, you know, all these World War II movies, Band of Brothers, and that sort of, you know, combined with my own reading in the history of the Holocaust sparked my interest uh, in history. When I went into college, um, I did a dual degree program at Columbia University and the, the Jewish Theological Seminary, and uh, I actually majored in history at both institutions. But when I went into college, I didn't know what I was going to do. I figured I would be a lawyer, but um, I actually had one uh, professor. I took a class on the history of the anthropology of the Jews, or maybe it was just the anthropology of the Jews. And, and she encouraged me, uh, Professor Rebecca Joseph, encouraged me to sort of pursue this. And it uh, kind of opened it up as an option that one can do professionally, even though it turns out, given the realities of the job market, that's often not the case. I didn't actually know that. And it really spurred my interest in pursuing a professional career in history. Wonderful. Uh, so let's get into your book. Your book traces the history of someone whose name will be unfamiliar to, I imagine, the majority of our listeners. How dare you, Dexter? How dare you? No, that's absolutely right. Yeah. But, but obviously, uh, Hans Speyer was tremendously important. Uh, can you briefly tell our listeners who he was and um, perhaps why he mattered? Yeah, I think that's, that's an important question. I say in the books, um, I believe it's the... Uh, the preface to the book that that he Speyer is what I call uh, a lister, a quote unquote lister, and that you know there's a bunch of intellectual histories written about the mid century United States, and oftentimes they'll have lists of intellectuals, and uh, Hans Speyer could sometimes be on that list if you're talking about German exiles, or sometimes even uh, what I call defense intellectuals, basically. Uh, 
people who had a PhD or an advanced degree, or even someone like George Kennan, who didn't have either, but consciously styled himself as an intellectual. Um, there'll be lists of these people and Spire will be at the end and, and probably no one will know how to pronounce his name or really who he was. Um, <laughs> but he's actually a pretty, uh, pretty interesting guy. He was uh, Karl Mannheim, who was um, a very well-known German sociologist in the 1920s, actually of Hungarian descent, but really made his reputation in Germany. Um, he was the first doctoral uh, student of Karl Mannheim in Weimar, Germany at the University of Heidelberg. He was uh, one of the nine founding members of the uh, university in exile at the New School for Social Research in New York. And Speyer was actually um, the youngest founding member. And people might know the New School. It helped bring Leo Strauss over from um Germany and a couple of other famous, very well-known people, Claude Levi-Strauss, um, French anthropologist, um, Erwin Piscotter, and later uh, very well-known scholars like Hannah Arendt and Hans Morgenthau taught for the New School. And Speyer was actually not only one of the founding members of the graduate faculty at the New School, but the guy who was literally bringing the contracts to the University in Exile's founding member. So he's, you know, he's, he's already by, by his, by the mid 1930s, late 1930s, he's already, you know, pretty important intellectually given his connections to Mannheim and the new school, but his career really takes off in world war two. Um, when he starts using his, uh, knowledge, his sociological knowledge in the service of the state, particularly his expertise, in psychological warfare. So um, the first thing he does after um, the war, actually the United States joins the war in late 41, is Speyer becomes uh, head of the Foreign Broadcast Intelligence Services uh, German Committee. Um, and now the Foreign Broadcast Intelligence Service was essentially the government agency that analyzed um, Axis propaganda. And Speyer was essentially in charge of providing propaganda analyses from the FBIS about uh, Nazi propaganda that he read. Uh, but in 1944, in May 1944, a month before the D-Day invasion of June 6th, Speyer moves from the FBIS, the Foreign Broadcast Intelligence Service, to the Office of War Information, the OWI. And this is where he becomes a pretty influential guy because he's basically the head of the group that um, writes the propaganda directives that were intended to guide OWI propaganda sent to the Germans and other nations, but I focus on the Germans in my book um, during the war. Uh, so he does that for a couple of years. Uh, the war ends and he's invited to become the, uh, the associate chief of the State Department's Area Division for Occupied Areas. And he basically serves as um, the acting chief, the real chief of that division between 1946 and 1947 for various reasons. And one of the most important of which is that his um, titular boss is actually an alcoholic and can't really fulfill his duties. So Spire becomes head uh, of this area division for occupied areas of the um, State Department. Uh, and then he, um, after the war, he briefly returns to the new school, kind of realizes academia isn't for him any longer. And he enters uh, a really a, a, a quite important position where he becomes the founding chief of the Rand Corporation's social science uh, division. And this is this is influential because Rand and also its social science division um, were, were particularly important in the making of U.S. foreign policy in the fifties and the sixties. Some names that you might have heard of: Nathan Lighty's worked for the social science division. Alexander George worked for the social science division. Paul Ketchkometi. Um, William Kaufman were people who worked for the social science division and elsewhere at Rand, there were scholars like Herman Kahn, Albert Wallstetter, and uh, I forgot to add, of course, Bernard Brody, who also worked for the social science division and who Speyer was essentially responsible to bringing um, 
responsible for bringing the RAND. So Speyer had this influential um, perch at the RAND Corporation. He became a consultant on U.S. psychological warfare, actually influenced quite a bit uh, U.S. psychological strategy against both the Soviet Union and the German Democratic Republic. Um, and then also through his connections at RAND, uh, became linked to the Ford Foundation, where he was essentially uh, the person, uh, one of two people, but I think he was more influential than the other guy in this in- uh, instance, that helped Ford or spurred Ford to fund the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences, which eventually was located at Stanford, and the communications program at MIT's Center for International Studies, which is most well known in the literature for being the center of modernization theory at MIT's Center for International Studies, people like uh, Walt Rostow worked, Paul Rosenstein, Rodin, Max Milliken, uh, Ithiel de Sola Poole, uh, Daniel Lerner. But in its first years, at least, the program was um, largely supported. The center was largely supported by this grant that Spire helped the Ford Foundation, helped encourage the Ford Foundation to give concerning an international communications program, which I discuss in my book. So as you can see, what, what Spire is basically like an interesting guy because he's at the center of a bunch of these different, uh, quite important intellectual communities, whether they be in Weimar, Germany, the interwar United States, or the Cold War United States. Wonderful. That's a great introduction to him. Um, So your book is more than a biography of uh, just one person, though. Uh, You trace the emergence of a new kind of person, the defense intellectual, um, whose role, uh, you suggest, transformed the way U.S. foreign policy was made. Um, Can you Tell us, like, what was a defense intellectual? Sure. Um, so I think it's important here to be to be a little specific. So, of course, um, intellectuals, however you want to define them, either academics with PhDs or, or lawyers or, or businessmen, um, mostly men, of course, had, of course, advised U.S. foreign policymakers before uh, the Cold War. Um, dollar diplomacy. In dollar diplomacy, in Woodrow Wilson's The Inquiry, there were scholars who were, who were shaping the way U.S. foreign policy was made. But in my reading of this time, these were mostly ad hoc or very limited associations. There wasn't yet an institutional infrastructure that had grown up to basically make defense intellectual into uh, what a career, right? So the way I define a defense intellectual in the book, and, and as I would define it going forward, is, is sociologically in the sense that a defense intellectual is someone who moved through a new network of institutions that historians, uh, particularly Ron Theodore Robin, who wrote a great book in um, The Making of the Cold War Enemy, uh, dubbed the military intellectual complex, which is a network of think tanks, academic institutions, and also government groups that essentially provided employment to intellectuals who wanted to influence and advise U.S. foreign policymakers. And this, of course, is a network that continues to exist, even though it was really founded only in the late 1940s and the RAND Corporation was um, really the central model of, of a lot of institutions of these networks. So a defense intellectual specifically is someone who moves within this new network of Cold War institutions that uh, consciously links scholars and academics and thinkers to the pol- uh, to the policymakers who actually pull the levers of U.S. foreign policy. Great. Thank you. Uh, one of your book's biggest accomplishments is following an intellectual thread from the interwar era into the Cold War. And Speyer, like many of his time, experienced the 1930s as a crisis and, like others, embraced what you call crisis politics. And those crisis politics would make a return in the post-war era. Can you share with us what you mean by crisis politics? And can you elaborate on the continuities between the interwar experiences and the Cold War mentality? 
Sure. And I think this is one of the most important claims that I make uh, in the book. So what I argue is that at least in terms of foreign policymaking, I think it, it has been defined by what I term either crisis politics or logic of crisis since the 1930s. So in, in my reading, at least, um, what happens in the, in the 1920s and 1930s is that a transatlantic group, um, German exiles like Speyer, uh, Otto Kirchheimer, Jean von Neumann, Hans Morgenthau, and also Americans who, who at the time, we have to remember, were very much in awe of European uh, culture, European society, at least amongst the elite. So people like George Kennan, Robert Hutchins, and others who were really looking toward uh, European politics as for lessons or for an understanding of where the modern world was going. And what these people learned uh, across, as you as you can see from the list that I made, we have uh, socialists, we have conservatives, we have liberals. Uh, across the political spectrum, many people determined that the rise of Hitler um, and particularly the fact that Hitler and also Mussolini, but really their focus was on Hitler, uh, was the product of mass support, demonstrated that there was a fundamental weakness in democracy in the age of mass politics, which is that the quote unquote people or the demos or the ordinary person uh, was very likely to be either manipulated by things like propaganda or by elites to support anti-democratic political programs. And this really engendered a sense of crisis amongst a wide swath of intellectuals, both uh, in Europe and Germany, who witnessed it firsthand, but also in the United States, who remember, were culturally familiar and concerned with what was going on in Europe. And this, at least I argued, permanently shaped the way these guys, and they were mostly guys, so not totally guys, understood um, democratic politics. And for them, democracy was an inherently weak political forum that in moments of crisis, uh, and, and for this reason, in moments of crisis, one essentially needed to take anti-democratic actions or engage in anti-democratic behavior to ensure that democracy itself survived. Um, so in Speyer's case, this led to him embracing the idea that psychological warfare or propaganda, which he consciously argued was anti-democratic in the sense that it tried to manipulate people and not engage them in active discussion, were nevertheless tools that could be used to defend democracy in a moment of crisis. And this is the argument he makes over the course of the 1930s to uh, explain why intellectuals should align with the state and use their knowledge, uh, use anti-democratic tactics to achieve a pro-democratic strategic goal that is the saving of democracy itself. And this is the argument in the 30s. But what's really critical is that in the 30s, Speyer and others like him argued that when the crisis was over, so for example, when the Nazis were actually defeated, then normal democratic politics could go back. Uh, to, you could Normal de democratic politics would begin functioning again. So you wouldn't need propaganda and you wouldn't lead, need psychological warfare once the uh, crisis was over and the Nazis were defeated. Uh, nevertheless, um, after, the, after the war and the Soviet Union emerged as a new enemy, uh, Speyer and others like him use the logic of crisis that they had developed in the 1930s to understand and explain the Soviet threat and particularly to advocate in favor of, again, anti-democratic behavior. Uh, so, for example, um, one might say uh, propaganda, domestic propaganda, or the overthrowing of democratically elected governments in Iran and uh, Guatemala or various uh, other Cold War imaginings. And the way they justified it was in a way similar to um, how they justified anti-democratic behavior in the 30s, which was that essentially in a moment of crisis when the Soviet Union had nuclear weapons. And uh, I just want to underline, I think nuclear weapons are particularly critical here because it transformed the Soviet Union from what might be considered 
considered an aggressive member of international society into someone who is no longer considered to be part of the same world, the same framework as the United States. Um, it transformed the Soviets into an existential enemy. So I think nukes are uh, important. But basically what Speyer was arguing was that in, the, in an era when the Soviets and the United States had nukes and the United States um, and Soviets could basically destroy humanity, you needed to engage again in anti-democratic um, actions, tactics, in order to achieve a pro-democratic end. But the problem was, unlike in the 1930s, um, there was really no way to defeat the Soviets because of the peculiar features of the Cold War, right? So you have a relatively stable bipolar system. You have nuclear weapons. No one really wants to fight a third world war. The United States doesn't quite know what the Soviet Union's goals are, especially after Stalin dies, et cetera, et cetera. So whereas in the 30s, Speyer argued that in that quote-unquote moment of crisis, um, you could use anti-democratic uh, tactics. Uh, in the in the Cold War, that moment of crisis essentially turned into an era of crisis, which made uh, anti-democratic tactics long-term and able and justified in any case, because again, you're fighting this existential enemy that is the Soviet Union. Perfect. Okay, so chapter one, titled Masses and Marxism in Weimar Germany, um, explores Speyer's life in Germany um, during the Weimar Republic. It may come as a surprise uh, that the future Cold War strategist was a socialist when he was a young man. Um, can you sketch out in, uh, you know, in brief terms the ideological changes that Speyer was experiencing and how they connect to the tumultuous context of the Weimar Republic? Yeah, uh, it, it's actually a pretty simple case. And I think this is true for a lot of the Cold War liberals who really started their lives as socialists and not only socialists, they were what one might call left-wing socialists in that they, they weren't revolutionaries like the communists, but they, they had a pretty hard left position in the sense that they didn't think, for example, the socialists should necessarily, necessarily ally with liberal and bourgeois parties because this would dilute the working class interest, et cetera, et cetera. So Speyer was a very serious serious socialist going on and like many in his generation was on the left of the Socialist Party of Germany, the Social Democratic Party of Germany. But what happens over the course of the 20s and the 30s is actually pretty simple. So uh, according to Speyer's reading of Marxist theory, and you could get into the details of whether this is the correct or wrong reading, but at least in his reading, Marx predicted that when Germany became democratic, or Marx and the revisionists or the, the reformists like Bernstein predicted that when Germany became became democratic, workers would naturally support the Socialist Party because, of course, the Socialist Party was the only party that advocated in favor of their economic, social, cultural, political interests, etc. But what happened, at least in Speyer's understanding in Weimar, was that workers actually supported uh, anti-democratic parties like the Nazis or the communists. And this demonstrated two things to him. First, that socialist transformation was not to be found in the working classes, and two, that Marxist theory was wrong. So by the time Hitler is appointed to the German chancellorship in 1933, Speyer has already basically rejected Marx's theory for failing to predict uh, history, real, um, hi, uh, for failing to predict history accurately, and has uh, essentially adopted an incredibly elitist position that looks down on all of Germany's workers, not only blue-collar workers, but what Speyer and others called the Angestellten, or white-collar 
workers. And this essentially begins to um, uh, forces him or compels him to take up to take the first step on a path that eventually leads to him rejecting substantive notions of democracy as being about not only procedural equality, that is the right to vote, but also about economic equality, social equality, and cultural equality. But by the time and soon after Hitler uh, rises to power, Speyer embraces a very, I would say, jaundiced understanding of democracy as being about pretty much solely political rights. So essentially, the democratic citizen's duty ends when she or he casts a vote. And this is essentially because Speyer had lost his faith in quote-unquote ordinary people due to his experiences witnessing them support the Nazis especially, but also the communists in the Weimar Republic, who again were anti-democratic political parties. Awesome. So uh, the second chapter, titled The Social Role of the Intellectual Exile, uh, explores the really fascinating debates among German emigres on what the appropriate role of the intellectual in exile should be. And so uh, the collapse of uh, the Weimar Republic, the rise of Nazism, um, all of this spurred a mass exodus of intellectuals, and especially Jewish intellectuals, from Germany to the U.S., and especially New York and the New School. And not everyone agreed on what was to be done. And so uh, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about um, those debates, what were the broad contours, um, and the, the, the different approaches to being an intellectual in exile. Right. So um, this chapter discusses basically the second chapter, Speyer's assimilation into the American intellectual community, and first, why American sociologists were interested in his work. And I essentially say that this was a time of epistemological heterogeneity for the sociologists, and Speyer offered a new path, a new way to understanding how ideas themselves were socially constructed, because like his advisor Karl Mannheim, he was an advocate of the sociology of knowledge, which in very, very, very brief, uh, connected one's ideas to one's social position. So that essentially allowed Speyer to find a stable home in the United States um, at the New School and in the American sociological community. But the, the one of the main thrusts of the chapter is sort of this debate or this debate that I reconstruct between uh, Speyer and Max Horkheimer, who some listeners might know for his being the, uh, the really the main figure, at least the main administrative figure uh, of the Frankfurt School or the Institute of Social Research, which um, was founded in Frankfurt in the 20s and which eventually found the headquarters at Columbia University in the mid 1930s. And what I essentially argue is that uh, Speyer and Horkheimer, who had um, a couple of acrimonious discussions over the course of their career, Horkheimer once condemned Speyer in public. Speyer wrote a, a quite a negative review of the, of the Institute of Social Research's American debut, the Studien Uber Autoritetum Family, uh, and they would con- pretty much have fights for the remainder of their careers, periodically seeing each other and kind of getting in these somewhat petty arguments. And what I argue is that these, these divisions between Speyer and Horkheimer um, which weren't necessarily what you would expect. They actually agreed about a lot of things like the importance of the family and social life, the fact that the working class had failed, that these divisions, um, or at least had failed to fulfill its historical duty, uh, these divisions emerged from the fact that Speyer and Horkheimer had very different understandings of what the social world of the intellectual exile should be. So on one hand, Speyer viewed exile as a moment of opportunity, uh, a, a moment in which the exile has the moral duty to do what he can to help his adopted homeland defeat the regime, the illiberal regime, the anti-enlightened regime that had forced his immigration. And Speyer really argued that this is what exiles should do, that they should align with the American state and they should do whatever they could to defeat 
Nazism. Now, Horkheimer um, had a very different approach. In his opinion, uh, the purpose of, of the intellectuals, uh, what the intellectuals should do, and especially the purpose of what he dubbed critical theory, was to provide what he termed, or I forget if it was him or someone else termed, a message in the bottle for future generations. Mm. So Horkheimer adopted what I think is a very pessimistic understanding of the intellectual social role, um, at least in the 1930s. And I think it's important to specify that I'm only talking about the 1930s. The Frankfurt School undergoes shifts starting in the early 1940s and beyond. Uh, But in the 1930s, he maintained that intellectuals, German exiles, should essentially just do what they can to preserve this European Marxist humanist tradition that was under assault in Nazi Germany and provided um, a message in a bottle to future generations. And then Horkheimer actually forbade anyone who was associated closely with the Frankfurt School, with the Institute of Social Research, from participating in politics in the United States. And this is from a quote that Herbert Marcuse gave to Jürgen Habermas later in life, Horkheimer said you really couldn't participate in politics. And and Speyer really considered this to be a betrayal of one, um, what the United States had done. It had saved Horkheimer and the exiles from, um, even if they weren't sure of certain death, at least certain persecution in, in Germany. Uh, and uh, and he thought that one needed to really do what they can to help combat the Nazi menace. Now, an important thing to recognize, an important caveat, is that Speyer was not himself Jewish. Um, he was what I call a uh, Jewish non-Jew. I'm, I'm writing something on this now in the sense that his entire intellectual development occurred in the in what I would term a Jewish milieu. Uh, and he was married to a Jewish woman and all his friends were Jews. And he adopted uh, what one might deemed quote unquote Jewish concerns, but he was not Jewish, whereas Horkheimer was. And and I think this did allow Speyer to have a somewhat more sanguine understanding of the United States and as, as someone who could really assimilate more easily into it than Horkheimer and other members of the Frankfurt School, the majority of whom uh, were Jewish. Wonderful. So uh, the third chapter uh, called Public Opinion, Propaganda and Democracy in Crisis. Uh, So I love this chapter. It tracks uh, the period of Speyer's life that you claim to be his most significant, um, the mid to late 1930s. And it was in this period that Speyer began to doubt democracy's strength, as you've already uh, been alluding to. And he started also analogizing the Weimar experience as a universal one. Um, He became a so-called democratic realist. Um, And then he would also go on to work for the US government, um, again, as you've alluded to, as a propagandist during the Second World War. Can you situate Speyer in the 1930s debates about democracy? Um, What was motivating these debates? And how did Speyer's own view of democracy shift? Yeah, I think that's that's this is a really crucial part of the book. Um, so in my reading, there was a quote-unquote debate between the journalist Walter Lippmann and the philosopher John Dewey in the 1920s concerning democracy, the public, and the experts' role in it. On one hand, Lippmann argued that various new communications technologies, new propaganda techniques, etc., made it so that uh, traditional democratic theory would assume what he referred to as a quote-unquote omnicompetent citizen able to understand the variety of public affairs and, uh, and participate in um, basically setting 
setting the, the, the stage and the goals of public affairs was not actually possible because one, society was too complex and two, people were too easily manipulated, which Lippmann believed was demonstrated by uh, British success in propagandizing the United States to get into World War One on one hand and also the rise of new mass-based advertising technologies. So for this reason, Lippmann argued that um, the government needed to become in some sense an epistocracy or ruled by experts where experts um, headquartered in an institution connected to the government would be able to, I think the quote Lippmann has, it might not be by um, verbatim, but something on the lines is to make known the facts to those who have to make the decision. So experts would provide the facts to the policymakers who would use social scientific knowledge in their service of making public affairs better. So essentially that, um, it was not the public that was the most important actor in democracy for Lippmann in the 1920s, but rather it was uh, the expert. Now, Dewey, on the other hand, although he similarly, like Lippmann, agreed that public opinion or the public wasn't able to guide policy in the same way that that they argued the uh, founding fathers had in, in, insisted with this omnicompetent citizen. In Dewey's opinion, democracy without an active public was not democracy at all, and that the role of the intellectual was not only to advise policymakers. Of course, Dewey thought intellectuals should do that and social scientists should do that, but also the role of the intellectual was to educate the public, which Littmann essentially thought was a quixotic project. Uh, and so this is the broad divide that I that I set up in, in the beginning of this chapter. Now, I think it's important because the idea of a quote-unquote Lippmann-Dewey debate has come under attack in recent years, particularly by specialists in communications. And while I really do respect this, um, this literature, I don't think it's quite right. I think if you read between the lines of someone like Spire's work, he's very clearly sketching um, the debate between quote-unquote democratic realists like Lippmann and uh, democratic optimists like Dewey, even though he doesn't use their names specifically. And I think there's actually, in Spire's case at least, a very uh, important reason why he didn't use Lippmann and Dewey's names. Uh, Namely, both were associated with the New School and he wouldn't have wanted to be seen taking sides in this debate, right? But I think this it's very clear if you read Spire's essay, 1934 essay on propaganda, that he's participating in a debate between the, the sides that Lippmann and Dewey had established in the in the 19, uh, in the or early to late 1920s. So um, when he first arrives in the United States, actually Spire lines with Dewey over Lippmann. But over the course of the 1930s, his shift, um, he transitions from a Dewey uh, Dewey in position to a Lippmannite position, essentially because Hitler continued to succeed over the course of the 1930s, right? The Nuremberg laws are passed in 1935. Hitler is able to totally eradicate the socialist movement in any uh, working class constituency in Germany. There appears to Spire, at least from uh, from the United States, to be widespread mass support for the Nazi dictatorship. The same is true in fascist Italy, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so this convinces Spire that actually it's not really possible to educate the public like Dewey assumed and that Littmann was right and that especially in moments of crisis when democracy itself, remember, it had fallen in Weimar and all of the exiles at the New School believed Hitler was about to launch a world war. They, they write a volume in 1938 predicting this, um, etc. But that, that in a moment of crisis, it was actually legitimate to use anti-democratic tools like propaganda, which is what Littmann suggested in order to make ordinary people follow the policies that the elites wanted them to. So for Speyer, democracy transforms from, again, a substantive thing that means not only procedural equality, but economic equality, etc., to really something that only means procedural equality. But again, as I, as I alluded to earlier, this was only true for the moment of crisis 
within which Speyer was writing. In the 30s, at least, he assumed that when the crisis was over, when the Nazis were defeated, democratic life could return to functioning normally. Great. So the fourth chapter, uh, called Psychological Warfare in Theory and in Practice, um, reflects on the experiences of social scientists at war. And so Speyer, like thousands of others, as you point out, um, contributed their expertise to the war effort in a variety of ways. Uh, and those experiences had a profound impact on those social scientists and their role in society. Um, can you sketch out the, some of the consequences of war work uh, on the social sciences and then more relevant um, to, uh, to your book, the defense intellectual and the national security state? Sure. Uh, so it's long argued in the literature, and I believe this is correct, that World War II is really the crucible in which the, the Cold War social scientist, or what I might term the defense intellectual, is formed. The war uh, brings um, thousands of social scientists from all over the country to Washington or to outposts in Europe or the Pacific, uh, and they're basically using their, the, their social scientific knowledge in the service of the state. And this has a bunch of, of really critical things. One, um, it proves to social scientists that first – there was a space for them in the state. This wasn't necessarily the case, particularly for sociologists and political scientists who, unlike economists, were less consulted during the Great Depression and in the recovery program. So it proves to all the social scientists, including, uh, again, social sociologists, political scientists, anthropologists, historians, geographers, etc., that there was a place for them within the state. So this uh, uh, provides a new imagination of what the social scientists could do. Uh, second, it shows that group research, what we would today call interdisciplinary research, research, but what they back then referred to as mixed team research was something that could be useful. So the idea is that, for example, you think about the U.S. Strategic Bombing Survey, you get sociologists, you get economists, you get physicists, you get engineers, you get even biologists in some cases to come together and that they could produce a report or they could produce useful knowledge that policymakers could use or military officials could use to actually prosecute war and make it more effective. In Speyer's case, this was essentially sociological knowledge used in the service of um, psychological warfare, trying to get the Germans, uh, soldiers and civilians to surrender in 1944 and 1945. Um, so it changes the culture of these institutions. And... <laughs> Relatedly, um, it actually creates the networks that would continue to define the military intellectual complex. Remember that the groups of uh, think tanks, academic centers, and government institutions that characterize the Cold War uh, United States and foreign policymaking, it actually um, builds the networks that would then go into these um, uh, think tanks in the Cold War like RAND. So to take one example, almost everyone Speyer initially hired to the RAND Corporation, people like Alex George, people like Nathan Lighties, people like Paul Ketch committee. These were all people that he had worked with specifically during World War II in the Office of War Information um, or in somehow related to information policies in Europe. And this was also true for consultants like Edward Chills, who he hired to Rand, Harold Laswell, who um, he hired to Rand and who Speyer was friends with in the 30s. Um, so these networks were really, um, um, even though they were, they were pre-war antecedents then they were really solidified during world war ii so it really transforms um how social scientists think about themselves in the world which provides the basis for the defense intellectual but before we move on uh to the next chapter i, I do want to make one uh, methodological point because this is a podcast that probably mostly professional uh historians are listening to um yep. 
So what I want to make the point is that I think a lot of there's a lot of really great materials that haven't been treated necessarily as intellectual historical documents that are really ripe for investigation. So in the fourth chapter, what I do is I use the weekly propaganda directives created by Speyer and his group at the Office of War Information and essentially treat them not necessarily like philosophical texts, but like intellectual texts. And I think doing so really shows that there's a lot of social scientific ideas underlying something as, as general and something without citations and something that was really made in the moment, like a weekly propaganda directive, a, a document that is created every week that was intended to guide OWI propaganda. So I think there's a lot of really cool intellectual history uh, waiting to be written about materials that have kind of been overlooked uh, recently in the past. And that's what I try to do in the fourth chapter. And just one very quick final point, uh, the World War II is also critical for exiles like Spire uh, in particular because it demonstrates to a lot of them that they really had a place for them in the United States, that someone who was uh, 10 years before a German socialist could, by 1942, really become an important policymaker in the United States, which is really critical to helping um, exiles enter these institutions. Again, almost everyone I mentioned before, uh, Otto Kirchheimer, a member of the Frankfurt School, uh, Franz Neumann, a member of the Frankfurt School, worked for the OSS during the war. Herbert Marcuse also worked for the OSS. Uh, Paul Ketchkometi and Nathan Leides worked for various government institutions like Spire. And this really demonstrated to exiles that there was a space for them in the foreign policy establishment, which is, of course, really important because probably the two most influential national security advisors in the 20th century United States, or two of the most influential, McGeorge Bundy and Rostow, were also influential, but two were exiles themselves. Um, Kissinger, Henry Kissinger, was a German exile, and Big Brzezinski was an exile from Eastern Europe. So exiles are actually really critical in American foreign policymaking, and it's partially due to the experience of World War II. Great. Yeah. Uh, to go back to your methodological point, uh, I, I really endorse that um, your approach to intellectual history is uh, much broader um, than what is traditionally um, framed as intellectual history. Uh, and I uh, I say kudos to that. Thanks. I, I really appreciate that. And I think in this recent renaissance we've had in intellectual history, it's only for the better to expand our purview to mm-hmm. include documents that traditionally have not been really the focus of intellectual historical work. Yeah, it's an exciting time. Yeah. So uh, on to chapter five, uh, the making of a defense intellectual. Uh, And so um, this chapter traces how exactly the defense intellectual was made in the early post-war period. And so it's a deep dive into one of the key institutions of the making of the defense intellectual, which was um, RAND, uh, the Air Force-founded think tank um, based far away from Washington, D.C., all the way in sunny California. (laughs) Still based Uh, there. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And you've kind of already touched on um, this question, but uh, can you share with listeners um, what you find so novel about RAND, what what exactly its role was uh, in the national security state and um, and briefly, what was Speyer doing there? Sure. Um, so basically, after the war, there's a, uh, what, what Weber might have called elective affinities, unite a bunch of different groups. So on one hand, you have intellectuals like Speyer, who had a really, I, I, this is sort of, not sad to say, but it's just the reality, the war was exciting for them. 
right? They weren't the ones fighting on the fields of Europe or on the islands of the Pacific, et cetera. They weren't the ones spending times away for their family, but they were the ones setting policy to some degree, intellectuals like Spire setting policy to some degree and really feeling like they had an active hand in shaping the world. Whereas they had spent their previous careers essentially writing about the world, uh, a lot of them discovered that they actually enjoyed shaping it. And this was particularly true in Spire's case. When he returns to the new school for 1946, 1947, he, uh, he works at the State Department for a bit, as I mentioned earlier. Earlier, uh, for various reasons, leaves that position, uh, doesn't work, uh, declines a position actually in uh, the State Department's policy planning staff at some point, and as well as the Office of Military Government in Berlin, where he would have controlled information policies there because he's really frustrated with the government bureaucracy, right? He's generally just frustrated with the government and its bureaucracy, so he thinks he wants to return to the New School. But he returns to the New School and he realizes that he doesn't really quite enjoy just writing about the world. He kind of enjoys affecting it, right? So he gets in a bunch of fight with with his former colleagues. Remember, they were united by this exile split in the 30s, but by the late 40s, this, this sort of camaraderie of the interwar era had disappeared, particularly after Spire had spent years away from New York and Washington, D.C. So he decides he doesn't really want to be an academic anymore. But the problem is he also doesn't really want to return to the government. He left the government because he was incredibly frustrated with his processes, the bureaucracy, the people there, etc. So what he requires is actually a new type of institution that would allow him to affect policy without being, uh, I guess, subject to what he considered to be governmental indignities. And this is where he gets lucky. Because right when the war was ending, the Army Air Forces, in particular the General Henry Hap Arnold, uh, some people who are my age might know him as being paranoid on The Simpsons as General Henry Hap Hapablap. Um, <laughs> a sort of strange love-esque figure. But in real life, General Henry Hap Arnold determined that the um, the alliance between the Air Force and particularly engineers and scientists was really critical to helping the Air Forces, which were then the Army Air Forces, of course. They don't become an independent branch of the military until 1947. Um, was really – so uh, Arnold – concludes that the the association with intellectuals, with scholars, with scientists was really critical to helping the Air Force fight the war well. So he really doesn't want this to end with the war, and he's worried that too many of these scientists and engineers would return to the university because who wants to live under military discipline when they didn't have to? So what Arnold does is he essentially has a discretionary fund, and he allies with um, Donald Douglas of the Douglas Aircraft Corporation to create a uh, – he gives them $10 million – to create an independent uh, research group within Douglas called the RAND Project. Now, RAND stands for Research and Development. It's an uh, it's a it's an acronym, and it was later joked to be Research and No Development because RAND never developed anything. <laughs> but it was called RAND, the RAND Project RAND, and it's headquartered in Douglas. And this is a space where uh, scientists and engineers are working primarily, not primarily, solely under an Air Force contract, but they're headquartered within Douglas and working on problems of military interest to the military. Now, it's important to remember that Arnold and Douglas were actually in-laws. Their children had married each other. So there's these deep connections between these various elements of the uh, American corporations and uh, the military that are critical to founding RAND. Um, 
So that is uh, what happens with the, the founding of this Project Rand at Douglas. And over the course of um, basically Project Rand is founded in 46. And over the course of 1946, 1947, 1948, some people at Rand decided that if they really wanted to advise uh, military officials and the Air Forces and, and eventually policymakers themselves about war, they couldn't only rely on scientific knowledge, engineering knowledge, etc. But they needed to incorporate the social scientists because social science, you know, economics matters to how you fight a war. Society matters to how you fight a war. Culture matters to how you fight a war, etc. So what they did was in uh, September 1947, they called a, a, a very well-known um, conference of social scientists and invited a number of veterans from the uh, the military, exp- uh, from the World War II government to attend this conference of social scientists. Um, and the purpose of the conference was to essentially recruit heads for two new RAND divisions, one uh, dubbed the economics division, which is famous for helping apply game theory and other formal and quantitative techniques to um, problems of military war and policymaking. Um, sorry, problems of the military and war and policymaking, and also to found a social science division. So a number of very famous social scientists are invited to this. Uh, Ruth Benedict, the anthropologist, um, Margaret Mead's mentor and lover was invited. She was the only woman there. Um, Speyer was invited. Bernard Brody was invited. Harold Laswell was invited. Pendleton Herring was invited. A bunch of other people who are well-known in the literature was invited. Uh, and at the end of this conference, Speyer... Um, was uh, not a, precisely at the end, but a few weeks after the conference, Spire was asked to become the head of Rand Social Science division. Uh, and it's critical to emphasize that Spire was asked because um, one of his colleagues from the Office of War Information, this guy named Leo Rostin, who was actually was a Hollywood screenwriter, a political scientist, and also the author of the famous uh, the Big Boo- Book of Jewish Humor or Yiddish Humor, I forget the text, sort of a poly, polymath, um, polyglot guy, um, recommended that Spire serve as the head of, of the social science division. And one of the reasons he said he should do so is because he was German. And so you could see the increasing space that German exiles occupy in the American imagination already by the, the, the late 1940s, which would of course explode when Henry, uh, Henry, wow, when Stanley Kubrick produces Dr. Strangelage. And of course the main figure is a German exile, in this case, a Nazi and uh, Dr. Strangelove. So we could see the important role German exiles begin to play in America, in the American imagination by the late thirties. And Spire accepts the position, obviously. Yeah. Great. Uh, so the, the next chapter, um, chapter six, um, the advisor uh, deals with the rise of the defense intellectuals clout among policymakers. And what's really fascinating, or one of, your, one of the really fascinating things about um, this chapter and then also in the last chapter is you show how the Cold War um, didn't begin uh, until 1949, at least from Speyer's perspective. And I, I can kind of sense from your perspective as well. Um, so uh, for Speyer, he thought that the crisis had passed in 1945 and that normal democratic governance could return. But then something changes in 1949. And you, you also uh, play with something that uh, Arna Westad has said uh, about uh, how the Cold War had many endings. And, uh, and you write that it also had many beginnings. Um, can you say something about this? Yeah, uh, this is, I think, a really critical point. Um, I think that there was a, there was a time, at least this is my understanding of the literature and diplomatic history in the 80s and the 90s, when people were really looking to discover when did the Cold War begin, 
Um, why did it begin? And these are, of course, critical questions. But what uh, I'm increasingly coming to conclude, uh, having read a lot of the, the new literature on the subject, is that there is no quote-unquote beginning of the Cold War, but it began differently for different communities and for different people within their communities. So for some people, the Cold War might have begun in 1943 when they were locked in a Moscow embassy and they were unable to uh, get out. They really began to envision a U.S.-Soviet struggle going forward. For some people, it might have begun in 1946 when George Kennan's famous long telegram began going around Washington and people began to really see the Soviet Union as analogous uh, analogous, sorry, to, to Nazi Germany. But in Speyer's case, what really makes the Cold War into an existential struggle is the Soviet development of an atomic bomb, uh, which the uh, Americans learned about in the autumn of 1949, even though the Soviets had developed it a bit earlier uh, in August. Um, so for Speyer, once the Soviets get the atomic bomb, it really transformed what he initially considered to be, you know, an aggressive struggle. The Soviets, like all their great powers, really wanted to assert their power, um, et cetera, et cetera. But the United States could deal with it. They were still part of the same international society. They understood the rules of the game. Um, the, but the Soviet acquisition of the nuclear bomb transformed the Soviets for Speyer and many, uh, many of his generation, I think, um, into actually analogous to the Nazis. And and so this is where you get the widespread use of totalitarianism in the community. Now, of course, totalitarianism had been a term, as William David Jones has shown, that had been, uh, and Ben Albers have shown in both of their excellent books dating back to the 1920s. Uh, and Truman famously had used it in, his, in the 1947 Truman Doctrine speech. Um, but you really get the, the intellectual substance of totalitarianism for at least Speyer and his community. It comes, it really comes in 1949 when the Soviets get a world-destroying weapon. And when the Soviets get the world-destroying weapon, and and the U.S. atomic monopoly up to that point. Now, of course, Speyer had no problems, had no qualms about the U.S. having a world-destroying weapon because the U.S. was good, but you couldn't try trust the Soviets, in his opinion. Um, so once the Soviets end the American atomic monopoly, the Cold War transforms into a truly existential struggle analogous to the one that the Nazis had waged in the 1930s. And you get Speyer, who had mostly ignored questions of public opinion for a decade, pretty much once he entered uh, the wartime administration. Um, he again returned to the question of public opinion, because for him, the critical issue of modern politics is what the hell do you do if the Americans don't want to fight this long, drawn-out struggle with the Soviet Union? They had just survived the Depression. They had just uh, survived the war. Americans didn't want – they wanted to demobilize, uh, at least Speyer thought. They didn't want to necessarily fight the Soviet Union. And so what Speyer did was that he began to advocate that policy, uh, uh, you know, what he had claimed in the 1930s and really what Lippmann had claimed earlier, he began to advocate that policy needed to be really almost totally expert directed. And they needed to, and, and not only that, it needed to be expert directed in institutions like RAND, which were nominally independent, but connected to the government and most critically, uh, not really subject to congressional, uh, appro- uh, congressional oversight or public opinion. Now, this would change at uh, different moments in this history, but this is Spire's initial vision. So he writes this essay uh, in 1950 called Historical Development of Public Opinion, essentially tracing a genealogy back to the Enlightenment, which said that what the philosophes meant when they said public opinion was not necessarily mass opinion, one rule, one vote, but essentially rule by um, 
by, by experts. And he says, how can anyone look at the first half of the 20th century, the failure of the League of Nations, the rise of Nazism, the success of the Soviet revolution, the success of fascist Italy, the rise of Franco, uh, the various isolationist movements in the United States in the 1930s, um, and not conclude that you could, that public opinion was actually deleterious to policymaking and democracy. So for this reason, he argued that intellectuals ensconced in institutions like Rand or the ones he would later develop, particularly at MIT, the Center for International Studies, needed to be the ones making policy. Now, what changed, again, is that whereas in the 30s, this was a moment of crisis, in the 40s and at 49 and beyond, again, it's an era of crisis due to the, again, the peculiar features of the Cold War, bipolarity, the fact that no one wanted to actually fight a third of the World War the belief that psychological warfare could be used sort of permanently transformed Spire's moment of crisis into an era of crisis, which I I argue in the book became a critical logic for policymakers to appeal to should they want to. Now I want to emphasize this logic wasn't always appealed to, but it did reoccur at various moments in American history, uh, particularly the early 1980s in the so-called second cold war. And most famously, probably in our experiences right after nine 11, where you again have a resurgence of the language, of crisis in American politics. And I think we might be seeing something of a return to that now, now that Bolton is NSA. I wouldn't be surprised if the language of totalitarianism and crisis, et cetera, is used to describe both Iran and North Korea. So it becomes a critical American tradition that policymakers have uh, could appeal to should they want to. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the, the next chapter, uh, chapter seven, the institution builder, uh, highlights another role that the defense intellectual played, that of building up the institutional infrastructure of um, what you've been calling and Ron Robin coined, uh, the military intellectual complex. Um, so through his work at the Ford Foundation, um, Speyer in particular was instrumental in building up the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford and the research program in international communication at MIT's Center for International Studies. Um, Can you tell listeners a bit about Speyer's role in building up the military intellectual complex? Uh, And um, why was a place like MIT's Center for International Studies so important to defense intellectuals? Sure. Um, So I think this is really critical. And and you get a bunch of these institutions united by what I would call – the a common ideology of meritocracy, which is, of course, connected to elitist politics. So for Speyer and his generation in, uh, writing in the early 1950s, what they wanted to do was bring the quote unquote best people together to have them uh, do a variety of things. So at Rand, he wanted to bring the best people together to make policy better, to provide policy advice. Uh, and then uh, at the Ford Foundation, he wanted to have the Ford Foundation and particularly his behavioral sciences program fund the best social scientists in the country. And there were various aspects aspects of this project. So on one hand, Speyer, like again, many in this generation, and this is Hunter Hike's uh, really important observation, believed in the quote-unquote linear model of science, which was the idea that basic research would eventually lead to apply research and which would eventually lead to solutions to practical problems. But Speyer was concerned about the development of social science in the early 1950s. And what he urged the Ford Foundation to do was to fund the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Science as a space where social scientists could come together, pursue basic research, the best social scientists in the country, you know, the most famous uh, social scientists in the country would come together and pursue basic research, which would eventually lead to um, 
solutions against the practical problems. So that's on one hand. And on the other hand, he also felt that universities should participate in this new larger project to bring expert uh, knowledge to bear on policymaking by creating uh, particular groups dedicated to providing intellectuals with access to policymakers. Uh, and MIT Center for International Studies was one such institution. And for reasons of time, I can't really go into the, the origins of the center, but it's essentially found in, in um, this uh, psychological warfare project that was undertaken by the State Department in the early 50s called Project Troy and emerged out of that as a way to bring uh, intellectuals at MIT uh, together with policymakers. And over the course of the 50s and the 60s, some of the most influential people, uh, again, Walt Rostow, who became national security advisor and helped really develop modernization theory, Daniel Lerner and Ithiel de Solopool, Paul Rosenstein Rodin, Max Milliken, all very influential modernization theorists were headquartered at CIS. They, they were technically academics. Their work was primarily geared toward providing useful knowledge for policymakers. So essentially what Spire wanted to do was create nodes throughout the American institutional infrastructure that would provide intellectuals and academics with homes that would enable them to pursue policy-relevant research. And he was able to fulfill this project because of the connections that RAND had to the Ford Foundation. So again, this is a very incestuous community. So RAND (laughs) separated from Douglas Aircraft over the course of 1947 and 1948 because Douglas essentially believed that he had lost out contracts to the Air Force uh, because the Air Force didn't want to play favorites and they had already given Douglas so much money while Rand thought that it was actually just outgrowing Douglas and couldn't um, survive effectively within that institution. So they separate. But Rand is able to do this with the hel- uh, help of this guy named H. Rowan Gaither, who was a wealthy San Francisco lawyer. So Gaither helps Rand essentially become an independent nonprofit corporation in 1948. Now, Gaither is also connected to the Ford Foundation because he wrote – in 1949, the report that essentially provided the guidance, guidance to the Ford Foundation going uh, in the 1950s and beyond, and was in fact also an associate director at the Ford Foundation in charge of its social sciences research program, but eventually became the behavioral, was named the behavioral sciences program. So due to Gaither's connections to Rand, he became uh, very friendly with Spire and asked Spire to serve as the consultant, one of two consultants, the other being Donald Marquis who would tell the foundation what they should actually fund throughout the 50s, uh, throughout the 1950s. And the foundation, the, the behavioral sciences program existed between 1951 and 1957. Um, and Spire actually brought the head of that, uh, the behavioral sciences program, Barnold Berelson, who he had known since the 1930s, um, to the Ford Foundation. And indeed, Gaither had probably, it's a little unclear, but it seems to be that he had asked got, uh, Spire to leave Rand to head the behavioral sciences program, but Spire uh, declined. So Spire turns out to be this really influential figure that helps direct the Ford Foundation's monies to these two centers, the Center for International Studies and the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences, which become crucial nodes in the network of elite social scientists over the course of the 1950s and 1960s. The center being a space where people come to write and pursue basic research, and the center, uh, sorry, the Center for Advanced Study being that space for basic research and the Center for International Studies being a space for more applied research. And in Spire's vision, these institutions all connected to each other uh, in what I call term a pyramidal vision, where you would have basic research by places like Center for Advanced Study, which would then be more sort of immediate uh, research like um, conducted by people at places like the Center for International Studies, and then even more immediate research conducted by people like Spire at Rand, and then it would eventually be implemented by people on the top of the pyramid in the government. So it was this coherent program about what the intellectual could provide 
to American society in an era of existential crisis. And of course, none of these institutions were subject to any forms of democratic accountability. Inspire was very much in favor of philanthropy, which one might understand as an anti-democratic form of political practice because it's wealthy benefactors as opposed to the public or its representatives that determine what's in the best interest of public affairs. Inspire had no problems with this, and this was all connected to what Mike termed his generally elitist sensibility and understanding of politics. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the uh, the next chapter, chapter eight, uh, called Social Science and Its Discontents, um, explores the debate at RAND between the quantitative and qualitative approaches to the social sciences. Uh, and this debate was far from academic, um, thanks to the increased influence of social scientists um, on foreign policy in the 1950s. And unfortunately, for the interest of time, we won't have uh, the time to go through this chapter substantively. Um, but I just wanted to alert the readers to a really interesting discussion of how uh, the qualitative social scientists um, uh, like Speyer um, poo-pooed the quants modeling approach, uh, and this led to um, uh, an innovation in the political military game, um, uh, which would mimic real-life situations, and it uh, really spread as a pedagogical tool, not only in the university, but also right. in right, uh, right. the military. Yeah, I just wanted to alert uh, readers to that, um, because I really sure. want to get into the conclusion. So uh, you end the book with a sketch of Hans Speyer's life after 1960 and more broadly, the world that he had helped create. So with the U.S.'s war in Vietnam, the defense intellectual and the national security state faced increasing criticisms from other intellectuals and activists. Um, And uh, since then, however, both the defense intellectual and the national security state have thrived. Um, Can you discuss some of this history for us? Sure. I mean, so very famously, you have critiques of defense intellectuals as early as 1956 when C. Wright Mills wrote The Power Elite. And C. Wright Mills essentially says you can't be a quote-unquote true intellectual because the intellectual's purpose is essentially to speak truth to power. And you can't speak truth to power when you're actually serving power. And that's C. Wright Mills's critique. But this critique doesn't really take off until the Vietnam War. And then uh, it becomes apparent to many scholars uh, ensconced in the academy that people like Arthur Schlesinger Jr., people like Walt Rostow, seem to align very consciously with power over truth. And this leads to a rejection of defense intellectuals, perhaps represented most saliently in Noam Chomsky's famous uh, essay from 1967 in the New York Review of Books, the response to being of intellectuals, where ironically, using the language of Karl Mannheim, uh, Chomsky says that there are no more free-floating intellectuals in the United States, or there are not enough. They they serve power too much, and this is this is a pretty popular critique in the late '60s. It's aligned with the '68 student uh, rebellions elsewhere, and in fact, some groups, uh, for example, on American University and, and in Stanford, are actually kicked off campus. But uh, by the mid 1970s, this, you know, the student movement had sort of petered out, and defense intellectuals continued to thrive um, in various think tanks, uh, universities, and increasingly in the government itself. So you have someone like Paul Wolfowitz, who was trained by Albert Wallsetter, who was Speyer's colleague at Rand, uh, serve as a political scientist at Yale for about a year or two, I forget exactly, in the early 70s before essentially making a career in the government as a defense intellectual. And this figure continues to thrive throughout the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. You have people like Condoleezza Rice, Anne-Marie Slaughter, Samantha Power, conscious intellectuals who nevertheless become part of the state. And what, what one of my main conclusions of the book is that I think that um, 
def- uh, defense intellectuals helped contribute of Spire's generation, helped contribute to the establishment of this elitist political culture. I might even term it an anti-democratic political culture that doesn't take the public opinions into account as seriously as it could. And that one of the things that could be done going forward is that these experts institutions could more consciously engage the public in helping determine what foreign affairs should be, what are the options of foreign affairs, as opposed to primarily focusing on providing advice to policymakers themselves. And uh, myself and Stephen Wertheim published a piece to this effect in Foreign Affairs uh, in 2017, uh, if anyone wants to read a bit more of my thoughts about that. Great. I'll, uh, I'll cite that in the uh, write-up to the, uh, the podcast. And uh, as is tradition on the show, uh, can you share with listeners what you're currently working on? Sure. Um, my next book is uh, provis- very, very provisionally titled uh, The Rand Corporation, colon, History, uh, and it's under advanced contract with uh, Princeton University Press. And what I hope to do is essentially write – I said essentially like a thousand times in this. I, 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 uh, I apologize – what I hope to do is not essentially right uh, the history of uh, the Rand Corporation from its founding, uh, or the Rand Project Rand from its founding in '46 until roughly today. And I have to give credit to Rand. Um, they didn't really have an archives, but they have in the last year opened up their archives to researches. And I have worked closely with um, Rand's archivists in helping develop a Rand archive. And I've gathered thousands and thousands of documents of material. And I actually hope to begin really delving into this project within the next week. So that is where I am currently. Great. Well, thanks again, Daniel. Uh, Thanks so much, Dector. I really appreciate your taking the time. And thank you, listener, for tuning in. Till next time. Till next time.